0: listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. National Mental Health Awareness Month comes to a close next week. So today we have a show featuring stories that touch on the importance of mental health in several areas of life. We start with the workplace. Emergency medical technicians and paramedics are first responders who are often overlooked when compared to the attention given to police officers and firefighters. Many may not know that they're short-staffed on Oahu, a situation that's been stretched even further by the onset of the pandemic. Mark Kunemune is the clinical coordinator at Kapiolani Community College's Emergency Medical Services Department. He recently started taking first responders to work in the Ko'okua Aina Taro fields in Kailua, it was a way to process increased stress with all the trauma that they're exposed to. The conversation's Russell SubiONO takes us to Oahu's windward side to talk with Punimuni
1: out in the lohi. So yeah, there are two levels. There are EMTs, or emergency medical technicians, and there are paramedics, and the paramedics are the higher trained folks. I would like the public to know the extent of what paramedics do out there in the field. You know, EMS hasn't been around as long as fire and police, so people don't really fully understand what EMS does. And so uh, I always say that we're kind of like the Rodney Dangerfield of the first responders, you know, don't really get the respect. Part of it is the way it started. I mean, paramedics were not paramedics. They were basically ambulance drivers, but things have changed significantly since those times. So, like, you know, to become an EMT, which is the basic level, it's a, basically a semester-long course, and then you work for between one and three years, and then you go to paramedic school, and then paramedic school is a full year. So, when you think about it, you know, that's like maybe two to four years of really being in the field to be become a paramedic. So, the training is pretty extensive, and the, the skills that a paramedic possesses and the interventions that a paramedic does, highly skilled. In the tracheal intubation, which basically anesthesiologists and respiratory therapists and paramedics are the ones that do that, nurse anesthetists that do that, you know, starting intravenous lines, administering emergency cardiac medications, doing a thoracentesis, which is decompressing a hyperinflated chest. I mean, there's some pretty invasive things that paramedics do. I don't know if everybody understands the depth and the breadth of what medics have to do and the decisions that they have to make on a daily basis. I imagine that when our
2: paramedic staff here is stretched thin, I imagine that that experience is just increased, the, the amount of traumatic experiences or,
1: or opportunity for trauma. I mean, I can just tell you by what I see and experience. I primarily do all the clinical instruction for the paramedic program. so. I'm out in the field riding on the AMS with, with my students pretty much throughout the year. So, you no, know, I see it. I, I've seen the ebb and flow of the stress pre-COVID. And, then, and uh, you know, 2020 was the call volume actually dropped in 2020 when COVID first came, came, came around because people were afraid to go to the hospital. So the call volume just dropped significantly. But then um, come the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022 when Omicron came, the call volume increase. In 2021, early, it's kind of like the call volume went somewhat to where it was before pre-COVID. But then what happened was that call volume did not decrease. It stayed the same. And then on top of that, the COVID calls came. I mean, people were calling for every little thing. I mean, people who thought they had COVID were calling the ambulance to say, hey, you know, I think I got COVID. Can you take me to the hospital and get a test? And so, you know, so you add that number of calls to the normal load, which is already high, I mean, it, it it really put a lot of stress on the medic. So I mean, you know, on an average day, it would be like maybe at a busy station, be 10 to 12 calls. And then I think like the beginning of 2022, the call volume was like 15 to 24 calls on a shift, on a 12-hour shift. So that's a lot of calls. Granted, a lot of them were calls that were like I mentioned, where people were not necessarily really needing a 911 ambulance, but they're calling, so it still takes its toll. And if they are infected, you still risk, as a paramedic, you risk exposure to these people. And if any of your equipment was exposed to this person, you need to decontaminate that equipment. All that is added stress.
2: Everyone has to have a, a way to process the trauma that they endure. And one of the things that you've done in an effort to help them combat the physical and mental health effects of the job is to take them to a lo'i or taro field like, like we're in right now. Can you talk about how that opportunity started, how you came up with that idea?
1: So one of the really important things in the UH system is to integrate the Hawaiian culture into the curriculum of all programs. Being a part of the system, wanting to, to do so, and believing that it's important, we'd go to the lo'i and we'd go to the one in Kaniwai. You know, it was a good experience, but, I mean, we didn't really have a deep, deep understanding of the value. And, and it wasn't until we were in Aloi and In the loe we came out, and we went to the, I think this particular time, went to the Loe up in Lions Arboretum. And we came out, and there was a La'olapa'au practitioner that joined us. And she saw us coming out of AloE, and we went into the Holly over there. And she looked at us as we walked up, and she said to us, hey, you know, it's really good for you guys. And we're kind of like, "Oh uh, Yeah and she said well you know the work the kind of work you do what you're exposed to you know the negative energy and the negative vibe in the air when you respond to a lot of your calls that's absorbed into your body yeah? and so she said you know you when you go into aloe it's really good because the aina will draw out all that negative energy and not only will it draw it out it'll kind of replenish it so if you've been in aloe and you've worked in the aloe when you're done with your day usually you usually come out and you feel kind of tired and drained but you know, a good kind of tired and drained, you know, like, like you, you put in some good work. And, and so that kind of said to us, oh, this is why we feel this way. Because if all that bad energy or negative energy was drained out of us or taken out of us and we replenished, it kind of makes sense to feel that way. Since then, we've been pretty purposeful about coming to the Loi and why we're coming. And, and we started off with just students, and then we expanded into inviting our field instructors who are working paramedics to come with us. And uh, I want to say one of the most significant cases was after, I think it was like January 2020, there was a bad pedestrian accident, three-person fatality, and the the district chief had called me because she experienced the lo'i and knew the value in dealing with traumatic experiences, and so she said, hey, can can we bring the crews down to, you, to the lo'i, the crews that responded to that triple fatality, and I said, sure, sure, you know, so... We had about maybe seven, eight medics come down, and they came to this loy over here, and they worked in the field, you know, and kind of sat around after we, we talked a little bit and had lunch. And it was really good, and you could kind of somewhat sense that there was there was some weight lifted off off of these folks, you know. But the telltale thing was a few months later when I had I came back to the Loy with another group of students and the farm managers and the interns pulled me aside and he said, Uncle, pretty amazing to see the transformation of these medics. You know, because he said when they came, they were really like heavy and it was kind of like dark and, you know, just down. And he said, man, when they left, they said they could see a marked difference. And they, they were lighter, they were more upbeat, they were happier, you know. And so, you know, for us, it was kind of validation that that there is something that happens when they come to the lo'i. And the cool thing, it's not necessarily having Conversations about, oh, yeah, this, I experienced this and it made me feel really bad. It's, it's nothing like that. It's, it's, I want to say it's almost nonverbal. It's being in the Aina, being in the Lepo, or the mud. One of the things I like about this loy over here is the, the Lepo is deep, you know, because it's spring fed. So if you work in the loy, you get into the loy, you get inside. And so if you go with the theory that the quote unquote toxins are drawn out when you're in the mud, this is a really good place.
2: The actual work that goes on. What, what are they doing? Are they clearing out weeds? Are they actually harvesting the kalo? All of the above.
1: There are times when we come and we, we weed. You know, people who have yards or people who weed and are into weeding and they know weeding is, can be kind of meditative. People sit in the low and they talk story. It seems like the conversations flow real easy in the loye While they're pulling weeds, other people, they want to be by themselves, so they kind of go off and be by themselves, and that's absolutely fine. But everybody's in the loyi. Everybody's kind of working with their hands, putting their hands in the soil, you know, stepping in the soil. There are other times when we're uh, cleaning the kalo, some of the farm managers will pull kalo, and then we just help them clean it off. Other times we'll, and I can't remember the exact term, but it's basically once you've harvested the taro, you let the loyi sit for a little bit, you're turning, turning the mud, you're turning it over, and you're kind of, you know, getting ready to plant again. Done that. You know, whatever work needs to be done, we do. Before
2: an opportunity like this to come and work in the land, what are some other ways that paramedics use to cope or process the things they experience on the job?
1: From my experience, the number one way people de-stress is talking to their partners or talking to their colleagues. A lot of times it'll be, let's go have a beer and sit down and have a beer and talk. Or sometimes it's just, uh, I've been on a call where it's a really bad pediatric call and just really bad, really gut-wrenching. And uh, the medic that was in charge asked the chief to shut the unit down for a little bit. And we went down to the beach and just stood, stood on the beach and just kind of let, just we all just kind of just let it all, just uh, the salt air and, you know, just kind of pull it all out of us. So people over the years, I mean, you know, like, drinking, unfortunately, has been a common practice. So a nice thing about the loey, one of the medics that were here, he says, you know, it's usually the conversation that I had in the loey today is the conversation I have in the bar. So I said, it's, it's probably better that I have this conversation in the loey versus in the bar. And we're like, yeah, hell yeah. But then, you know, I've I, I seen it kind of evolve over the years. It used to be if you can't handle it, you shouldn't be in the field. You know, so you've got to suck it up and do whatever you got to do. So, you know, I think a lot of people just... Consciously or subconsciously would get in the ocean, surf, dive, whatever. A lot of guys that are work, would work out, lifting, you know, not as CrossFit, you know, that kind of stuff. Running, or that people would have hobbies. I mean, I think people find ways to do it because you, you have to. You have to. You know, just being that the university system wants us to integrate the culture, it's like, well, shoot, this is, this, the culture's all around us, so let's, let's utilize it.
2: A lot of bugs here. I've had a couple crawling me. Here's a spider. <laughs> I don't know where he went. I mean, I'm not afraid of spiders, but
1: we are sitting outside. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to think... And the, is, the is teeming with life, man. All kinds of life. Yeah. You know, like you were
2: saying, there's plenty of ways to de-stress, to process, and I imagine there are many first responders out there who don't know that there are programs available to help them process. Or maybe feel like they don't need it or maybe they know they need it but are too shamed to admit it what would you say to those paramedics those first responders
1: the first thought that came to my mind is I think the organizations themselves the EMS agencies I think they need to kind of start really looking at how can we help our providers de-stress and not just kind of you know say well do it on your day off or here's a discount on a membership I think there needs to be a greater conscious effort and working with the whole to de-stress somebody that's searching. I mean, you talk to your friends within the department. What do people do? Cause guaranteed, there's people out there that longtime veterans that are healthy they take care of themselves and they know how. And so, you know, just ask. It's just, you got to do sometimes. You just got to ask. Yeah. What's the best
2: way the public can show their appreciation for paramedics for first responders?
1: I think. Uh, thanking them. I've seen people during COVID, and you're on the road, just people come up and say, thank you very much for what you're doing. And it's really cool. But I think, you know, the community can pull together and do things for first responders, whether it be and have a first responder day at Alohi, or there was a time where a couple groups of paramedics went out to Camp Erdman to do a ropes course, but have those kind of, it could be community-sponsored, community-led things like that. I mean, be a potluck, let's feed the paramedics, you know, whatever, you know, let's, let's take care of the firefighters, let you know. So, I mean, and that's kind of a very local kind of way to think, being community-minded like that, but I think it'd be highly effective, you know. I think that's, that, that'll speak volumes.
2: Thanks for allowing me to come out to the Lo'i and meet with you and hang out in this beautiful Hale overlooking the tarot fields.
1: Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for coming out.
0: That was KCC's paramedic clinical coordinator, Mark Kunemune, talking with HPR's Brussels Subiono.
3: Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, offering original art and gifts by Hawaii artists, including paintings, jewelry, clothing, and more. Also online at magnolia-hawaii.com.
0: Got an event you think our listeners might like? How about submitting it to the HPR Community Calendar? It's free! Whether it's an art exhibit, a live performance, or something for the whole family, we're looking for your events. Submit your event at hawaiipublicradio.org events.
3: Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School.
0: This month marks the one-year anniversary of Colt Brennan's passing. He was a record-setting quarterback for the University of Hawaii football team in the mid-2000s, leading them to a 12-1 record and a Sugar Bowl berth in 2007.
1: Second and short, Brennan to throw again. Far side, it is caught by Grice Mullen for a touchdown.
2: Brennan throws, that is complete to Ross Dickerson. Leaping for the end zone, touchdown!
0: Brennan, complete to best, touchdown Hawaii. But Colt Brennan struggled to find the same level of success as a professional football player in the years after. In 2010, he was a passenger in a car crash on Hawaii Island that left him with a traumatic brain injury. The next decade saw him both giving back to the community through youth football camps and coaching, and also wrapped up in a series of legal issues. On May 10, 2021, he was found unconscious in a California hotel room after ingesting fentanyl. He died the next day at the age of 37. Brennan's family is hoping to find some triumph amidst the tragedy. Last year, they started the Colt Brennan Legacy Fund at the Hawaii Community Foundation to support local youth sports and mental health organizations. Here's a rebroadcast of the interview that Brennan's sister, Carrera Shea, did with the Conversations' Russell SubiONO. It was about her brother's experience and honoring his memory. I talked
2: to a former San Francisco 49er, Jesse Cipollu, and a local sports psychology consultant to get their perspective on the pressures and expectations of high-profile athletes and how they dealt with it. From what you know of Colt's experience, how much did he feel that pressure and expectation?
4: I think he definitely felt it. He just had a really good way of hiding it. But I think deep down, it was hard for him. You know, he definitely had nerves. I mean, I even remember watching him in some of his first games at UH. And I mean, he'd be throwing up on the sidelines before he'd run in for the play. You know, that was just his nerves. And then he did later admit that he actually smoked pot before every game you know, which disappointed his family in hearing that, but it also demonstrated what he had to do to deal with the anxiety for him. I think it just allowed him to focus and kind of tune out all the noise around him. So unfortunately, you know, that was his way of self-medicating to deal with it.
2: Prior to his play at the University of Hawaii, what kind of sports career did Colt have before that? Was he highly touted as a high school quarterback? Was he the team leader in Pop Warner days?
4: He definitely was in Pop Warner days. He was always the kid that had the most skills because he started right when he could at age eight. And we would joke that a lot of times he'd be he'd play both defense and offense because they needed him to do that. When he got to high school, he was at Modern Day and he was behind Matt Leinert. Clearly, Matt Liner was the star and Colt was the backup quarterback. He didn't really get a chance to play until his senior year after Matt graduated. And he did well, but, you know, it was a short amount of time to prove himself. So my parents actually sent him to Worcester Academy in Massachusetts, which was a prep school. And he was able to play with their football program for an extra year. So that gave him some more time. And then from there he he went to CU Boulder and he unfortunately was there a short time when he got in trouble and he got kicked off and his hopes of playing football were pretty diminished at that point. There were few and far between teams that, would, that were reaching out to offer him spots to play and luckily June Jones was one of them.
2: We celebrated Mental Illness Awareness Week and World Mental Health Day earlier this month. It seems that our understanding of mental health issues and our sensitivity to them have increased in recent years. And we've seen high-performing athletes in the public eye withdraw from competition. We look back to Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles during the Olympics. What was Colt's experience in this area? Was he also dealing with some mental health issues that he didn't quite know how to process?
4: Yeah, unfortunately, I think it did start before he got to Hawaii. His experience of just getting into trouble when he was only 19 was actually pretty traumatic for him. And he would constantly say that that experience haunted him. And, you know, he claimed it was PTSD. He never got over that. And so he carried that with him to Hawaii. I feel like. One of the reasons why it affected him so much was that his character was attacked during the incident in Colorado, and he really wanted to prove himself. So I think he was able to accomplish that in Hawaii, and I think he enjoyed that opportunity to redeem himself, to feel good about himself again. But then, unfortunately, I think when he didn't have a long career in the NFL, that shame started to come back that maybe he didn't live up to his expectations for the people of Hawaii and for our family. He was a very sensitive soul. So he felt things very deeply. And then on top of that, it was a car accident that included a major head injury. So we don't, you know, a lot of it was just the physical injury affecting his mental illness too.
2: What was your family's experience as Colt dealt with these issues?
4: You know, Cole just had such a good way of putting a big smile on his face and, and making us feel like he was happy and everything was okay. It was only like at moments he was kind of breaking down that he would express himself in what his pain was dealing with. And unfortunately, it was in those moments when he was using drugs and alcohol. And so the the moment would be so irrational and so extreme that it would be hard for us to have a calm conversation about it with him especially after the car accident he was a little irrational and volatile with his emotions i think that the head injury affected that but we never gave up on him i mean it was a constant struggle that we fought with him for the whole 10 years so we did the best we could but looking back i i do feel like you know, even back when when he was dealing with his issues in Colorado, I feel like we could have handled that better. I feel like we could have gotten him help even then. And I feel like maybe if we had the conversation of what life would look like after football sooner, then it it, it wouldn't have been such a shock for him.
2: What more do you think can be done for high-profile athletes to help them work through issues like anxiety and depression, especially in the post-career era of their lives. Are there programs out there that you would recommend or is there more that you feel the public can do? Can they be more compassionate? Can they be more understanding?
4: I mean, certainly by just talking about it more now and making people aware of what the issues are for these athletes, I don't know what programs the NFL has has in place currently, But what comes to mind is certainly they have a team doctor and team physical therapist. Do they have a team psychologist that players can check in with regularly? Um, Or maybe it's almost mandated that they at least have a conversation with that type of professional because a lot of things go undiscussed with athletes, I think. And then after, once they're out of the system, Yeah, I think there should be some follow-up and some support and some programs in place dealing with these issues after they're on the team.
2: And can you share more about the Colt Brennan Legacy Fund and its purpose?
4: Yeah, so shortly after Colt passed away, our family was just receiving a lot of support and from the people of Hawaii mainly. And we were just shocked that he was remembered and revered still just because there had been some time that passed from when he was actually playing football. And then we had people reaching out like Barefoot League wanting to do a memorial t-shirt in honor of him. And they wanted to send the proceeds to our family. So we just thought it was a great opportunity to create a legacy for Colt, to try and do something good out of this tragedy. And Colt loved giving back to the community. He you know, was always volunteering. I use sports programs. And so that's one area we'd like to help support. Obviously, UH or UH Athletics in general is a big one as well. And and then we just want to try and do some good in bringing more awareness to mental illness and addiction and support those organizations that provide resources.
2: That's great. I'm glad that you'll continue to remain in our consciousness. I never got the chance to meet him, but I did see him coaching. And he was here a lot. He spent a lot of time here. So I, I could see I could see his love for the state through his actions. What can you tell us about Colt's love of Hawaii?
4: Oh, he would just want to thank the people of Hawaii. I mean, he was so appreciative to get that opportunity to come there and play. And I just think it was such a mutual love for him and the fans. And he, he just embraced the culture. And I think he just really appreciated the fact that people loved him despite what maybe baggage he had. They were willing to give him a second chance and overlook that. And he felt like he was part of a big family. And that was really personal for him. And it was personal for our family, too. I mean, we I spent a ton of time in Hawaii following his games, going to Aloha Stadium, and those were some of the best times of our life, too, for our family. So, we also want to take the opportunity to thank everyone in Hawaii, but he would he would be really appreciative, and I think he'd be shocked of how much love there is still there for him. I think he'll be proud of that.
0: That was Colt Brennan's sister, Carrera Shea, talking with HPR's Russell SubiONO. Mm-hmm. The Hawaii Community Foundation says grants from the Colt Brennan Legacy Fund have been made to two local nonprofits, and they're currently considering a third. For more information on the fund, visit the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today.
3: Support for HPR comes from TS Restaurants on Maui, committed to the island's community. Kimo's, Leilani's on the Beach, Hula Grill Kaanapali, and Duke's Beach House are supporters of Maui's Westside Public Schools and their teachers. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers,
5: scientists,
2: and creative artists.
5: Hi, I'm Colleen Morrow, author of Spiritual Telepathy. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about ancient techniques that will help you access the wisdom and guidance of your own soul.
3: Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create relevant and transformative experiences through art with collections of Asian, European, and American works, including Arts of Hawaii and Textiles, honolulumuseum.org.
0: 7,000 Hawai'i youth experienced at least one major depressive episode in the past year. That's according to the Hawai'i Department of Health. However, more than half, approximately 7,000, did not receive treatment or even a mental health assessment. Experts say children and adolescents are more likely to seek help when accessing mental health services is destigmatized. Jackie Jackson is a parent of two adult sons and a young daughter. Her firsthand experiences dealing with her son's mental health challenges led her to becoming a certified parent support provider. She shared that story with The Conversation's Lillian Song. Here's a rebroadcast of that interview. I just remember it so clear. We
6: got to a point where I was dropping him off at school, and he just told me I can't get out the car. And I, I was like, what's going on I don't understand and he just said I can't get out the car and I could see you know he was you know struggling within himself trying to figure out you know how to muster through but I guess he had been mustering through for so long that Mm -hmm. he had finally reached that point where he couldn't do it any longer unfortunately you know so many of our children deal with anxiety They deal with all these stressors, these mental health challenges, and they don't have systems in place to either feel like they can talk about them or discuss them openly. And so that's why it's been my goal to reach out to parents, because I didn't know what to do at that time. You know, I was so thankful that we had private insurance, because I was able to get him into, you know, a therapist pretty quickly. He was able to begin treatment fairly quickly, so... I took what I learned from watching him, and it's made me more aware. Your son was in the car.
5: He was just like, I can't get out. This is too much. How long was his struggle?
6: Well, it had started at the beginning of his junior year, but then summer came. He thought maybe he had conquered it. He didn't have the same fears and anxieties, but then senior year came. That's when it really blossomed and came to a head again. And that's when I finally, you know, like I would notice some nervousness. I would notice some little um, tweaks that he had, you know, constantly washing his hands, little things like that. But as a parent, I didn't put it together. I didn't necessarily have a name for what he was going through because he was, you know, very active in theater and danced. You know, I'm thinking, well, how could you get on a stage and not have stage fright but yet, at the same time, you're battling anxiety inwardly. You know, it took me a long time to even realize that I needed to ask the right questions to him, that mm-hmm. I needed to be that voice of support to him. At that time, he didn't need judgments. He didn't need, well, how come, you know, how come you can do this, but you can't do that? That's the last thing. He, needed. he just needed me to be a parent and listen to him.
5: And this is your experience speaking now. Yes. So what are some things to be mindful of,
6: is it a sudden change in behavior? It's not necessarily sudden. And children are as varying you know, as their symptoms. The things that I've learned say to look out for long-lasting sadness or irritability, things that last more than two weeks, to make sure that if they're experiencing those extreme highs and lows that you're watching them. There could be excessive fear, excessive worry, anxiety, like my son experienced. There could be a social withdrawal, the things that they used to enjoy doing they no longer enjoy doing, the people that they used to hang around, the places that they used to go. And there could also be dramatic changes in their eating or their sleeping habits. All of these things, you know, you want to watch out for. Mm. Because it can, you know, seemingly sneak up on you, but at the same time, in an instant, be right there in front of your face.
5: Mm. You have done the research. You are aware of resources to help direct people to. And like you said, every child is different. The factors are different in every story, in every person's life. For you, as a peer support parent, mm-hmm. how do you connect with somebody who is new to this situation?
6: As I've been working with Hawaii families as allies. It's not a very large organization. We've been around for over 35 years doing authentic peer parent support. I'm currently working on a juvenile justice grant through the Office of Youth Services. And what we do is do family support for parents of at-risk or adjudicated youth. Our organization also does consulting. They do trainings. There's a lot of things that they work on to help those who... Have that lived experience to develop that and formulate it together to be a peer support person. Mm. And
5: this happened for your son as he was a junior going into his senior year. Mm -hmm. How
6: long ago was that? He's now 26 about eight years ago, and I've been in Hawaii families, uh, coincidentally, a little over eight years. So I was very glad to get connected with this agency. I know the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Division of the Department of Health actually partners with about 12 different local agencies so that there's resources that families can contact. There's the National Association of Mental Health, as well as the National Federation of Families for Children's Mental Health. There's a plethora. There's Hawaii Cares. There's the crisis line. We definitely want people to text ALOHA to 741 if their child is having an immediate mental health challenge. Don't wait. There's so many things going on right now, and we know that our children can sometimes be impulsive. So we want to make sure that we have those systems in place. And so I urge parents, always be that listening ear for your child. Not only listening, but also watching. Like I said, watch their mannerisms. Watch and see if the people that they're hanging around with has changed, if they've become more withdrawn, if they don't take pleasure in the things that they used to take pleasure in, If they're especially if they're giving possessions away. That's often a you know a major red flag that they're thinking of doing something severe to themselves, mm. and the self injury. We know that it costs the lives of hundreds of youth every year. Mm.
5: Yeah, right now we're National Children's Mental Health Month, mm. and the Hawaii Department of Health and the Children's Mental Health Acceptance Planning Group is really encouraging us to foster acceptance, and to support access to mental health services for keiki, and so. We're moving from awareness to acceptance now.
6: Well, I equate it to living in Hawaii. You can be aware you live on an island in the middle of the ocean. That's awareness. But acceptance is when you realize, hey, I live on this island in the middle of the ocean. My resources are limited. So that means I'm gonna take care of what's here. I'm gonna make sure there's clean water to drink. I'm gonna make sure that it's sustainable. I'm gonna make sure that the keiki are protected. And that same train of thought went into the movement from awareness to acceptance this year. Mm. Because we need to accept that one in five youth experiences a mental health challenge. We need to accept that mental health challenges must be met with understanding and support. We must accept that bias and discrimination toward individuals who experience mental health challenges creates a barrier to them seeking treatment, and they have to be eliminated. We have to accept that our youth are facing serious challenges ahead that need to be addressed. And we have to accept that the future well-being of our country depends on how well we support and invest in this next generation. There are 13,000 youth in Hawaii who've experienced at least one major depressive episode in the past year, and that's up from 11,000 in 2020. It's estimated that 7,000 of those youth experiencing these episodes are not receiving services. Hawaii is 25th in the nation that as far as making sure that the youth have the services that they need. And it's estimated that 10 to 12 percent of the youth experiencing a severe emotional or behavioral difficulty, that it's underreported, that it could be as high as 12 percent. That means like one in two children in your child's class could be dealing with a serious depressive episode and not even either have the resources in place or no one can even be aware of it it's not just one person that's responsible for the health and well-being of our keiki. it's all of us from the school system on down mm. and making those connections at school having the the school counselors the school-based behavioral help they have systems in place so that children if they're struggling can reach out to people but the thing is because of the bias and discrimination our children are afraid you know that they're going to be called names or We have to normalize these mental health challenges. It's only when we normalize them that then our our children no longer, you know, have these fears. They don't have to worry about the stigma of being, you know, outed or being ousted by their friends. But they can be accepted. Mm. I know it was the greatest experience to me. I was in my dentist's office. And, you know, when you're in your dentist's office, you can't really talk a lot. But even he, you know, we were just cleaning my teeth, and he was sharing with me about his son. And I thought, wow, look how far we've come. I know we still have so much further to go. But when mental health challenges become a part of everyday conversation, then we move forward as a society.
0: That was Jackie Jackson, a certified parent support provider with Hawaii Families as Allies. She was talking with HPR's Lillian Song. If you'd like to show your support for Children's Mental Health Acceptance Month, you're encouraged to wear green through the end of the month.
3: support for the conversation comes from the hpr local talk show fund which helps hawaii public radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows mahalo to contributor ulupono initiative
1: this week on science friday what seemed like a breakthrough in sids research got the internet talking but researchers say this is a case of overhyping science even
0: though we know more about it than we did 20 or 30 years ago, there's
1: still a lot of mystery left. Why finding babies at high risk is harder than you might think. That's on Science Friday from WNYC Studios.
7: Beginning this afternoon at one.
0: An anti-bullying song is one of the tracks on an upcoming new album from local band Kolohikai. The song was used as part of the Hawaii Health Department's Children Mental Health Acceptance Week campaign earlier this year it's titled I think you're beautiful
6: know I
0: think you're beautiful lead singer Roman D Peralta wrote the track and described it as an uplifting song with an empowering message the conversations Russell Subiono sat down with D. Peralta to discuss the inspiration behind the music.
2: to me that in recent years, discussions about mental health issues have become more prominent and more important in the realm of public discussion, especially because of the pandemic. What have you been seeing in your part of the community in your network?
7: Well, I've been noticing a lot of the effects of social media on the young one. I think social media and bullying together has been one of the challenges that we didn't get to face in the 90s when Mm -hmm. we were growing up. So seeing the kids now, I can tell that their self-esteem is so much lower because of comparisons of how many likes or followers people have, how they look. I just feel like comparison is the thief of all joy and kids are only comparing themselves all day long from social media. And it affects their mental health. It affects how they view themselves, their self-worth, their confidence. And that's why it's so important for them to, in my opinion, find better, healthier ways to spend their time. You know, with the pandemic, kids felt more brave to say things they wouldn't ever say in person. Mm -hmm. And they would do it behind their screens. And, of course, cyberbullying was a thing before COVID but it only got worse over the last couple of years. And I think that's just something that needs to be stopped and kids need to be held accountable because the amount of depression that's happening because of bullying is something that is just is so avoidable.
2: I know that you've partnered with the Hawaii Department of Health to highlight the importance of Children's Mental Health Acceptance Month. Can you talk more about your partnership
7: Yeah, I had an amazing experience working with them. And so I went to five different schools over the past, say, three weeks. Before I went to see the Department of Health for this partnership, I also was already seeing other schools because I had a song that came out called, I Think You're Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that music video was about anti-bullying. And so it was an amazing collaboration to work with them, to visit the schools with this music video, and try to teach kids the importance of seeking help if they need it for mental reasons or challenges they're facing at home or in school, and also discouraging bullying at the same time.
2: The song that that you wrote, I Think You're Beautiful, had the opportunity to listen to it. In the song, your lyrics say, you feel undeserving, you feel ungrateful. you talk about this idea of a person's self-worth their value and why you chose to address that in your song?
1: Yeah,
7: I was bullied when I was young. I struggled with people teasing me about my eyebrows when I was really oh, young.
2: Same same here. And same so, with me. <laughs>
7: yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and the brutality of kids not realizing the power of their words, it really did affect my self-esteem. I didn't feel worthy. I felt un- I felt undeserving. I was hurting. And so this song was actually written to my younger self. If I was to sing a song to who I was when I was a little kid, I knew that if I was to try to talk to that, that young little boy that didn't feel good about himself, I knew that that was going to draw the type of passion in me that could help the kids that are actually that age right now. Mm-hmm. And so when I wanted to feel worthy about myself, but they didn't know how, how to find that, I knew that struggle personally. And so when I wrote these words, it was to try to impact kids to follow me in these lyrics to the sense that they could find their value and, and to be reminded that they're beautiful, no matter what size they are, no matter what race they are, no matter what IQ, talent, We're all blessed to be alive, period. It's such a blessing to have the gift of life. And so I went through a phase where I was so depressed that I didn't want to live anymore. And I thought of suicide. And it it scared me to think that our kids are dealing with the same thoughts. And I wanted to help them to not go there, to find their beauty, because it's there.
2: You're a successful recording artist. Many people in Hawaii are familiar with your songs, can sing along with you. How did you come from that place in your life where you were having suicidal thoughts to the place that you are now?
7: Yeah, I actually went through this depression off and on, even after Kaloikai began. Uh, my struggles with my mental health were something I dealt with over the past eight years. So my career as a successful artist was not something that happened after I came out of it. I actually was still doing Kaloikai while battling my depression something that most people don't know about. But what helped me was having a mental therapist, a counselor, talking to somebody who was a doctor in the situation helped me to use psychology as an amazing support. Our insurances usually cover these things, these appointments, and people don't know that. And so because like any injury, you know, physical therapy, You need help, whether it's a surgery. You know, I had ACL surgery six months ago. I know how this is. The recovery is sometimes just overwhelming. But our minds are so much more important than any body part. So I went to get help every week, and I did it for years. I went every week to see a counselor to help me keep my thoughts positive and to not give up on myself. And that's something that I really give full credit to for people and their faith. You know, my faith in the Bible was really what helped me. And reading scriptures that were encouraging, that was a huge, huge impact on me. It's something that's important, I feel, is getting help mentally, spiritually, and even going to the beach. You know, some, as simple as going to the ocean and listening to the waves and shutting your phone off was a huge help to me as well. I see you in those
2: Another theme that I picked up in your song is the idea that those who have been treated cruelly by the world, chewed up and spit out, as as you say, mm-hmm. and have come out the other side, that they should be helping raise up those that are currently going through that
7: experience. We have to be a community for each other. We have to help one another. When we know that we've struggled with something and we've been picked up and lifted up, then It is our responsibility, in my opinion, to help others in need. And that could be so powerful. You know, we we hear about the boy who shot all those kids. That boy might have been struggling with some mental health stuff on a level that none of us could have ever imagined. There's no excuse for murdering kids. There's nothing. But there's mental health things that we can all help each other with. We don't realize the impact that we have on our community. We don't know what we could do to help others to avoid falling into a horrible path. And so it's really empowering to think about that, that by showing aloha to each other, we could be stopping crimes we don't even know we are, you know?
2: Yeah, we could be saving lives potentially. Yeah. What would you say to those who have heard your song and are ready to take that next step, whether they're a child being bullied or parents who want to advocate for their child, or even the bully who realizes that they need to stop, what should they do?
7: Anybody who knows the lyrics to this new song, I would just really recommend for them to listen to it enough to where it really reaches their heart, to listen to the lyrics and realize that you're beautiful no matter what, even bullies. Bullies pick on others, people hurt others because they're hurting themselves. That's something that I've found to be super true is bullies don't realize it, but deep down inside, they're feeling totally insecure. (laughs) And if they could just feel good about themselves in healthier ways, they could stop creating victims out there that are being affected by their own negative words. What do they say? When you don't feel good about yourself, you create punching bags around you. I feel like to anybody out there listening, if you could just find the beauty that's there, the positive traits in you. Whether you're a victim of bullying, whether you are a bully, whether you're a parent of a bully or a victim of it, don't let this world distract you so much by making money and paying bills that you neglect the child that sits in front of you. That child is worth so much more than all the money in the world. And so I feel like parents don't take the time to show their kids the love that they deserve and the attention that they need in order for them to feel worthy, valued. Our parents are responsible for how their children are. We call on all the parents to take the time to show their kids their love and their beautiful.
2: Thank you so much for your time, Roman. I appreciate you taking the time to hang out and talk story with me.
7: No worries. Thank you for having me. I appreciate
2: it.
0: That was Roman D. Peralta of Kai talking with HPR's Russell SubiONO. It's about the band's anti-bullying song "I Think You're Beautiful." It'll be featured on their new album "Hazel Eyes," which is scheduled for release next week, Friday. That's it for this Aloha Friday. We're going to take a break for Memorial Day, but coming up next week we'll have a snapshot of the electric vehicle landscape across the state. Call our Talkback line. Leave your comments. That's 808-792-8217. You can post your comments on the Hawaii Public Radio Facebook page or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also listen back to our shows on the conversation page on the HPR website, hawaiipublicradio.org. The conversation is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subbiano, and Lillian Song. The Backyard Quiz theme was written for us by John DeMello and our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Tuesday. Pick up the conversation.